Good morning. Oh, that's not good enough. After that outstanding time of worshiping together, good morning. All right, everybody stand up. Let's go. Come on, everybody up. Everybody up. Introverts, I'm sorry. Shake hands to the people around you right now. Give a hug. Give a handshake. Say hi. Say good morning. Share some love, would you? All right, you can grab a seat now. I know for some of you just getting started, I know, I know. Now we're in a new series that we're calling Revelation. I I know that's extraordinary, isn't it? Revelation is the name of the series. We're taking an overview of what I consider to be the most misunderstood book in the entire Bible. So what do you know about Revelation? I asked this question last week, and we got all kinds of answers. There are bowls of sulfur and blood. That's in there. We have these, these, these giant uh, locusts, and we have four horsemen, and we, we have people eating scrolls, and we have war, and we have famine, and we have death, and we have a lake of fire, and we have a beast and a dragon. All those things are in there. All right, but to understand Revelation, you have to dig into some of the things that were happening as it was written. You have to understand the background. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 says this, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. Now, in the Roman world, culturally, right now as this is being written, Christians were being marched through the streets of Rome, and they would get to the temple of Jupiter, and Roman soldiers would be standing there, and they would say this, you can go to the right or you can go to the left, but you have to choose. If you go to the right, you're going to be sold into slavery. If you go to the left, you'll die a public death. Which one do you choose? That's happening culturally. And then in 80 AD, the Roman emperor named Titus put the finishing touches on this massive building called the Colosseum. Have you seen the Colosseum? Massive. Look at the inside of the Colosseum. Now, this is after it's been obviously destroyed over the centuries, but you're looking at this and you're going, the Colosseum would hold anywhere from 85 to 110 thousand people. Do you know how big Paul Brown Stadium, I know, Paycor, whatever it is at this point, you know how big that is? How many people does it hold? About 65,000. Add 30 more thousand people and you get the size of the Colosseum. It's massive. 85 to 110 type thousand people. Now they can pack themselves in that arena. There are also people when these things are happening just packed through the streets and the entire town and and they would watch gladiators battle. They would watch uh, reenactments of ancient wars. They would even flood the bottom of the Colosseum and bring real ships in to reenact naval battles in this place. That's how massive this thing is. Now, for most of you, you think of gladiators and you think of the Colosseum, you probably think of something like this. 
right? I mean, that, that's obviously one of my favorite movies. I absolutely love that. I love the fighting, and I love the history of that and seeing what's going on. But when you think about everything happening there, it's not a good scene. I mean, it's just not. In the opening week of the Colosseum, over 5,000 people and over 9,000 exotic animals, including bears, tigers, lions, elephants, and zebras, all were killed. That's a ton of death, guys. That's a bad scene happening right there. When Domitian becomes the emperor, he kicks up the persecution of Christians, and he slaughtered over 500,000 people and over a million animals in the Colosseum. Can you imagine that? I mean, we see this kind of historical, kind of glorified type thing, but there's nothing glorified about what was taking place in there. And, and it was said that the stench of death was so strong that it made you sick to even walk past the Colosseum. 500,000 people, a million animals killed there. 2 Corinthians 2 says this, again, setting as he's right, Paul's writing this letter, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That stench of death, the aroma of death was everywhere. And Paul's saying, we're the pleasing aroma to God. That's what we are. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? In other words, the smell that we are to God is pleasant and pleasing, and God is pleased with that, what we do and how we do it. As we are trying to figure out the whole book of Revelation, we have to remember that culturally different things are happening. Culturally, things are not similar to our culture, and there are things going on, and we have to understand the picture that John is painting for us in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.16 says this, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. You have to notice the objects that are taking place in Revelation. Now, in the ancient world, anyone that had a sword was what? They were powerful. They had power because they had that weapon. And you see this sword coming out of someone's mouth. And what does that mean? It means those words have power. They're powerful. And you need to figure out whose words you're going to listen to for your life because every word has power. And everything that's said to you has power. You just have to choose who you listen to to know how that power will influence your life. So the sword equals power of words. And then you see numbers in the book of Revelation. Seven represents God. Twelve represents the people of God. You have the twelve tribes of Israel. You have the twelve apostles. Um, when it comes to numbers, you have to ask this question. What is the spiritual significance of that number? What does that number represent scripturally for us? If God's number is 777, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfection, holiness, that's what that represents. And John describes this beast coming up out of the sea. And what's the beast number? 666. Does that scare you a little bit? Does that make you a little bit afraid? We don't want to live in house number 666, right? 
I mean, we'll bypass that place and buy somewhere else. If your change at the store comes to $6.66, you're buying another pack of gum just so you don't have that change coming back at you because we're afraid of what that number is. Don't miss the reality of Revelation. It's not about you being afraid of that. 666 is less than 777. God is more than, greater than, more powerful, more cunning, more loving, more giving. He's more than the beast, which is 666. Don't miss that. It's not to be afraid of. It's to say that God has you. He's in control, and he's more powerful than that. Now, when you go on and you look at not just the number, but the events that are going on, you have volcanoes, and you have earthquakes, and you have floods, and then you look at the creatures that are described in the book of Revelation from multiple thousands of eyes and and multiple heads and wings. But the key to understanding and unlocking the entire book of Revelation is understanding its main character, which is Jesus. Did you realize that? Jesus is the main character of Revelation. We want to focus on the negative and the scary and the the things that we don't understand. We think it's the end of times kind of thing. It's not about that at all. It's about Jesus. And this book was written to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us faith for the future, to secure our future by understanding that God and Jesus are in control. It's about Jesus loving us and taking care of us. That's what it is. We have to understand that this book was written to give us hope, to give us encouragement, because we're going to face some difficult stuff. And just like the people in that culture, in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm here for you. I'm going to take care of you. Open up your Bible, version app, whatever you've got. Remember, I want you bringing those and reading those. Open them up to the book of Revelation. All right, it's the end of the paper Bible, if you've got that, the last book of the Bible. And we're going to be camping out in chapters 2 through 3 today. In these two chapters, Jesus is speaking directly to seven churches that need to make some changes. Last week, we talked about churches in Scotland and the UK that, that my wife and I got to go visit a few weeks ago. And, and, and the, the theory is that Scotland was the most Christian nation in the world at one time, almost 100% Christian. And then the latest polls show that it's only 2% Christians. And you look at it and you go, well, what happened? Well, Europe right now is, is considered to be pretty much on the way out with Christianity, but that's not true. Now, the church has done some things that they needed to listen to this first few chapters of Revelation and figure out what Jesus was saying to the church then and to the church in the UK and to the church today to say there's some changes that have to be made. But the church, Jesus' people, are not dead. Christianity in Scotland is booming It's thriving, it's growing, it's just not in the form of what we know as church. These underground movements that are now swelling to be popular movements of Jesus followers all throughout the UK, it's growing and expanding. And we need to take a look 
at what's happening in this book of Revelation because I think we as a church need to figure out that church is not dead here in the United States. Christianity is alive and we need to find new ways and creative ways of maintaining that growth of Christianity even though it may not look like what it looked like 25 years ago. We need to do that. So you look at what's going on and you see, okay, what were they saying? What was Jesus saying to the seven churches of that day when Revelation was written? Well, the first church is Ephesus. All right, now there were about 250,000 people in Ephesus and it was named <coughs> after the goddess Diana. That's who they worshiped in Ephesus. And the center of the city was this massive temple to Diana and all the billboards and all the coinage was the symbol of Diana, which was a palm leaf. Outside the city, there was a small grove of palm trees, and they believed that the goddess Diana was born under one of those trees, so they called it the tree of life. And every year, they would gather around those trees, and they would celebrate, and they called it the paradise where those trees were. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, 7, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's like Jesus just smacking them in the face. He's saying, do you want to eat from the tree once a year when you can eat from the real tree of life for eternity? If you think a grove of trees is paradise, wait till you see heaven. Now, don't miss what's happening here, all right? Don't miss this. Jesus is challenging the culture. He's saying it's not okay to believe what you're believing. There are things that need to change in your mindset and things that need to change in your actions and things that need to change in the way that you're looking at how life is. He's challenging them to do that. So then he goes to the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna was a city that was built on a hill, and the, the, the building that wrapped around the hill created what they called the Crown of Smyrna. And the city had also been leveled by Alexander the Great, but it was rebuilt, and then an earthquake leveled the city again, and it was rebuilt again. Historians say that, that it died twice. It had two deaths. So look at what Jesus says in Revelation 2, 10 through 11 speaking directly to the culture that understood this. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this group of Christians trying to survive in this city known as the crown of life, Jesus says, if you endure the persecution, I'm going to give you the crown of life. You're not going to die again because the second death, you're living forever. You don't have to worry about that. Yes, we all die, but your second death is eternal life with Jesus. It's not dying at all. The first death is when you die to yourself, when you're reborn in Jesus' relationship, when you commit to him and you surrender to him. After that, there is no second death. And then you get to the church at Pergamum. 
Now, this city was known as the city of the sword. And Jesus says to them, I want to talk to you about this altar in the middle of your city. It was 120 feet wide. It was 112 feet long and 18 feet tall. Friends, that's massive, right? You can't miss this altar. If you're in the city, you're seeing it because it's that massive. And people called it the throne of Zeus. And they did animal sacrifices to, to the god, Greek god Zeus. And Jesus says, it's the throne of Satan. And any of my people who have anything to do with it will not face the sword of Pergamum, this altar. They're going to face my sword. And they're going to face my judgment. Is that strong enough for anybody? Listen, be careful of what you worship and how you're worshiping. Then they get to the, the uh, church at Thyatira, and this city is known for its sexual immorality, kind of like Vegas is known for its sexual immorality, right? Jesus says, get out of bed with a prostitute Jezebel. In other words, change the way you're living. That's not okay. This was a city that had the motto, if it feels good, do it, and that's exactly how they lived, and that's exactly how our culture currently is. And Jesus says, just stop. Don't do it. Your life, your future, your eternity is too important just to live for the moment. So get out of that realm and start focusing on what your future really looks like. And then he goes to the church at Sardis. And now this city had been invaded by armies. And the reason they got invaded was because the guards fell asleep as they were guarding the city and enemy armies came in and took over the city. Jesus says in Revelation 3, 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. You ever been to a church service where you fell asleep? Wake up, come on. You ever been there? I grew up, one of the churches I grew up in, the pastor would get up to speak and he'd say, I know it's been a long week for some of you. If you're tired, just close your eyes and lean back and go to sleep. I'm thinking, what are you saying? I'm a 15-year-old kid. Of course I'm going to go to sleep in church service right now. When you tell me that's okay, don't do it. But you look at what's happening there. And it's like, it's like you come into the presence of God, and if you're going to sleep in the presence of God, you're already missing what God wants to do in your life. You need to be awake, you need to listen, you need to hear, you need to worship in a way where God is present for you. Because if he's not, just leave now. You're wasting your time if you're not here to seek Jesus. Then he gets to Laodicea. It's the wealthiest of the seven churches. It was destroyed in AD 61 by an earthquake, and when the Roman government offered to rebuild the city for them, they said, we got it. We don't want your help. We don't want your influence in our city. We don't need your money. And so out of their own pockets, they rebuilt the entire city. That'd be like New Orleans after Katrina saying, no thanks, we got this. And they rebuilt it themselves. You just don't see that happening. This city is known for being incredibly wealthy. It was known for being the fashion capital of the world at that time. The finest and most fashionable clothing was designed there. Everyone was well-dressed. Laodicea was also well-known for a famous medical school where two doctors developed this eye salve that would cure most of the eye disease that was happening in that day. 
It was also known for the cold, fresh spring water that flowed from the nearby town called Colossae and the hot, boiling water that flowed from Heropolis that came from an underground volcano. It was hot, and these things were aqueducted into the city. And what would happen is, when the cold water got there, it wasn't really cold anymore because it wasn't fresh spring water. It kind of become lukewarm. And when the boiling water flowed there from the aqueduct, it wasn't really boiling anywhere. It was kind of like lukewarm water. So no matter what water came into the city, it wasn't hot or cold. It was just lukewarm. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you know what? He says, first of all, I'm not impressed with your clothes. He says, you're naked. In other words, your clothes don't mean anything. And then he says, I'm not impressed with, with, with your medicine. It doesn't mean anything. And then he said, you're lukewarm. You're not good. You're not producing something hot or something cold. You're kind of just existing. Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I, I like the actual translation of the word spit. It's spew. Makes it a little more graphic, doesn't it? He's going to spew us out of his mouth for not being either hot uh, or cold. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. That's the historical context that's going on. And Jesus is addressing every one of these seven churches individually saying, it's not okay. This needs to change, and that's not good, and that needs to change. He's addressing them specifically, and he's addressing us as well. I mean, you've got the historical background on these first couple chapters of Revelation, but here's the challenge with that. Don't let the background become the entire focus. I know a lot of people that are spiritually fat. Some of you might be included in that. You know a lot of Scripture. You memorize your verses that we've been doing for a year. That's important. But the more spiritually fat you become, you forget to exercise spiritually. You forget to put them into place in your lives. You forget to do something with the spiritual wisdom that you've gained. You've just become out of shape spiritually. Now, you got to let that turn into faith, into action. The purpose of studying the Bible is to allow our faith to be put into action. And you've got to get to that point in your life. So how do we apply this message to the seven churches to our lives? How do we put it in, in, into action? Seven times in chapters 2 through 3, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's not to an organization. The church is you. It's the people. You're the ones that he's talking to. You have to listen to what he's saying. Is there any message to any of these seven churches that jumps out to you more than another one? Let me, let me just pick a couple. Any messages here? 
return to your first love. Revelation 2 in Ephesus. I think that's so important. I really do. Return to your first love. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Anybody here forget your anniversary ever? You're still alive, so I'm guessing not. Whether it's the husband or the wife, anybody, don't raise your hand either. That'll get you in even more trouble. Have you ever forgotten your anniversary? I got married on January 1st, so I could never forget. That's specifically the reason I got married on January 1st. You know, do you remember your anniversary? What about Valentine's Day? You ever forgot that? Or any of the other 50 Hallmark made-up love holidays that there are out there? Have you forgotten one of those and your wife or your husband says, you don't love me, you forgot me? You didn't, whatever, buy this, do this, celebrate this together. You've forgotten your love. Jesus says, don't forget your first love, which is him. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, I, I know that you're doing a bunch of good stuff. He said, but you don't love me anymore. You have forsaken, you've left, you let go of, and all the erosion that's happened in your love with Jesus is tearing down the relationship. You do all these good things, but they're not motivated out of a love for Jesus. They're just motivated out of a love for yourself. This couple went Christmas shopping, and in the crowd of people, he grabbed her hand, and she said, that's so nice of you. You don't want to lose me. He said, lose you? I just don't want to have to look for you. Think about that for just a minute. We've forgotten to keep looking for Jesus. We might grab his hand, but maybe it's for a different reason, because we need help, because we need support, because we need encouragement, but you grab the hand because you're looking for Jesus. You want him spiritually to change your lives. Jesus says, you don't look for me anymore. You don't seek me anymore. You don't sing to me anymore. I, I know we sing songs here at church, right? Some of you sang this morning. Some of you didn't. That's just the way worship is different for different people. But we forgot to sing to Jesus anymore. Jesus says, you say my name and you listen to my words, but you don't even acknowledge them in your presence anymore. Is that you? There used to be this burning love and passion, but now it's not even warm. You don't even care. You have forsaken your first love. How's your love life with Jesus? No excuses. How's your love life with Jesus? Not, well, I don't like this, so I don't go to church throw that out the window. How's your love life with Jesus? The only excuse for not having a relationship with Jesus is because you're too finicky and picky and because you want to complain instead of simply going, Jesus, I love you. I want to be in your presence. I want to worship you. I want to serve you. Everything else is an excuse. How's your love life with Jesus? You remember how it felt when you first met Jesus? 
when you were first forgiven for all the stuff that's happened in your life? When you first came into that relationship? Remember where you were before that? For some of us, it was a pretty deep pit. Remember how thankful you used to be because Jesus died for your sins? And now you just forget about it completely. Remember how much you were forgiven for. Remember. Here's the next one for me, and it's the hot or cold thing. And I think that one jumps out to me more than anything else. Revelation 3.15 to Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, but I wish you were either one. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus either wants you hot towards him or be cold towards him. Both of those things can be positive, but don't be lukewarm. What's great on a 90-degree summer day when you're done cutting the grass? A nice, cold, refreshing drink. And what's great when your body's aching? A nice, hot, hot tub. You know, both of those can be positives. Lukewarm is neither good nor bad. It's just indifferent. So don't be indifferent. Hot or cold, relaxing or therapeutic, cool, refreshing, you need to choose. But quit being lukewarm. Here's the last thing that he says to all the churches, and that's repent. That's from a father to his children, saying, I love you so much that I don't want to see you stuck where you are. I want to see you change. I want to see you develop. I want to see you being everything that you can be because I love you that much. One of my all-time favorite people ever was a woman named Pauline Winkler, and she was a part of the original group of people that helped to start community in. Uh, what an incredible, incredible lady. Um, so kind, so giving, so loving. And she got cancer as she got older. And she had some time before she died, but she was really concerned about her kids and her grandkids. And when I did her funeral, we passed out letters to all the kids and the grandkids that Pauline had written individually to all of them. That Pauline had said, listen, read this, don't forget this. And she wrote to them about how much she loved them and how much she wanted them to be in a relationship with Jesus. Because that was the most important thing in this life. I'm going to challenge you today. What's the most important thing in your life? What is it that you need to change to rebuild the love that you've forgotten? Because all of us slip back now and then, and all of us forget what that, that grace and that love and that forgiveness feel like. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And are you moving forward from being spiritually fat to making an impact for Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, I pray specifically for everyone in this room and everyone watching online God, may they be challenged today. May, may they look at what you said to that culture and how you said it to that culture and look at what we need to hear and how we need to hear it said to us. But God, allow us to change. Allow us to fall back in love with you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.